0: Well, good morning, everybody. You turned me up maybe a little bit, Tyler. Uh, So, although this uh, has been a series officially on 1 Samuel, um, we are moving a little bit into 2 Samuel just this week because that's sort of the end, really, of this whole story as the plan for david to be king which has been anticipated throughout all of first samuel finally comes to fruition in second samuel and uh let's be honest we can't end a series with saul committing suicide and all of his sons dying on the battlefield. Um, That just didn't seem right. And as much as I love sad stories and tragedies and sad songs and sad music, even I don't want to end on that note. So uh, remember also though, that the book of Samuel and Kings uh, is actually all one book And it just got divided based on where they ran out of scroll for each of those. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 is just as good of a place than any to end our series. So this morning we arrive finally at David's public anointing as king. And we had previously seen his private anointing by Samuel that anticipates this moment. And so I want to, through these chapters, uh, reflect on David's story up until this point and what we can learn and what we can learn uh, from David's story of patient waiting for this moment, of persevering through the desert and the cave and the wilderness and the mess of life, all these topics we've talked about in this series. So three lessons from David's early life. And these are sort of traits that can take you from the cave, like David, to receiving the Lord's promise of a crown. So there'll be three uh, H's here, if you're taking notes as we go along. So after spending time in caves and in the wilderness desert, David is finally going to be king. And this is a key point in Israel's history. And I would refer you to this little handout we gave out at the very beginning of the series uh, that gives the key dates in Israel's history. And it's on the back table there and we'll leave it out for the end of the month. But this gives you a good idea and context of where you are in the biblical story as you read. And so we're around the year 1000 BC where David becomes king and he begins to unite all of Israel. But David's not necessarily, despite the circumstances, in a celebratory mood. Why is that? Because his best friend, Jonathan, has just died, along with Jonathan's father, Saul. And this brings up our first character trait, which I'll spend the most time on this morning because it uh, actually was an application point on several messages that I ended up just removing and moving uh, because it comes up so many times in 1 Samuel, and it's a recurring theme. And that is how David honored authority or honoring leaders. And this is such a challenging trait from David's life, and it's not a terribly uh, popular message in uh, today's culture, but you know, it's amazing that Saul hated David. He treated him so poorly. I mean, he tried to kill him, and yet David still chose to take a position of honor towards Saul because, and this is key, he trusted in God's plan and entrusted judgment into the Lord's hands rather than attempts to take matters Into his own hands. And the best way I can summarize this is that because David was not actively seeking power and authority, he was able to honor those in power and authority. And as these five chapters unfold and you can read them, we continue to see and learn through David's actions that he holds no ill will towards Saul or his family or descendants. I mean, this was David's chance to really take revenge, to take full control and say, hey, told you so. Look at me now, I'm king and your family and your kingdom and your legacy is dying. But he doesn't do that. David's not vengeful. David takes zero pleasure or satisfaction in Saul's death and demise. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says that he mourned and wept and fasted over Saul's death. And in these first five chapters of Second Samuel, there, there's a bunch of people jockeying for positions of power. And there's a war between the house of David and the house of Saul for a while. And there's some gruesome stories here of, of murders and there's stabbings. But David doesn't take part in or condone any of it, even though this activity was meant to benefit him. And one story that illustrates this is uh, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, which literally means man of shame, so we're looking for baby boy names, uh, cross off Ishbosheth off the list, man of shame. Uh, that's probably not gonna work. No wonder we never heard that name before. But he's trying to rule up north. And David's boys go up there and they bring his head back to David, thinking David's gonna be really impressed but he's not, to say the least. And you can read that in chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. But again and again, David acts with with integrity and honor and self-control when it comes to how he treats leaders and those in authority. Remember in 1 Samuel how David had at least three chances to kill Saul, to take control of the throne. But each time he said, I'm not going to do it. I will wait for the Lord's timing and I won't take matters into my own hands, choosing to leave it in God's hands. See, David doesn't act like other kings, and therefore he's the perfect choice for king because he represents God's calling for Israel not to be like the other nations. So church, we also need to be different. In a world that treats leaders with disdain and disrespect, We can be a light by honoring leaders and those above us or over us, even when it's hard, and entrust the judgment into God's hands. The Bible tells us in Romans 13 that that all authority actually comes from God. And how we relate to that God-ordained or God-appointed authority says a lot about our hearts and how we might be relating to God, who is our ultimate authority. So listen, because I know you might be kind of thinking of all kinds of caveats or situations here. So let's kind of tackle those first. First, number one, in case you don't know me, I'm actually not uh, a big authority guy. You won't even hear me use this word uh, a lot. And if you know me or read my writings, you know I believe strongly in creating a culture of mutuality and humility. I'm a passionate, egalitarian. I believe in non-hierarchical structure. And those are all written in our core values as a church as well, and you can read them in the brochure that's in the lobby. Second, I absolutely believe that we need to be aware of abuse of authority, right? We have to have policies and structures in place that prevent that, and we do as a church. And third, we should absolutely hold leaders accountable, right? Samuel did that with Saul. Uh, Nathan, we'll see Nathan do that later with David, So for sure, we don't let leaders just do anything they want and we don't just passively accept everything as okay. So it's okay to hold our politicians or pastors or bosses or other leaders accountable. However, we should still do so in a spirit of honor for those God has put over us. And we should do so carefully and with humility Always being aware that taking up a cause against any leader is very serious stuff. And David really understood that. And he was super cautious in not jumping on the the hate Saul bandwagon, which would have been easy to do, right? Nobody would have blamed David for it. In fact, it probably would have increased David's popularity if he would have done so. But he shows incredible self-control and discipline in waiting for his moments. Because David knew this, that we entrust the judgment of leaders into God's hands. And we don't take matters into our own hands. We should honor leadership, even if we disagree with it, and should never rejoice in the fall or demise of a leader, or participate in smearing them, or activities that cultivate disrespect for leaders or those in authority, because it's just not biblical. Do we speak against injustice? Absolutely, we speak up. The Bible does it all the time. But we should do it with humility, realizing the weight and burden of responsibility that our leaders carry. And we know that uh, no one wants to run for public office these days, even in our very small town uh, politics like here, because of the hate and the vitriol that they have to endure in person and especially on social media. And I've talked to our our MLAs and our MPs and they share how hard it is, right? And just how mean people are and how desperate they just need some encouragement. And I'm sure you have your opinions or thoughts about certain leaders or prime ministers or presidents or local officials or spiritual leaders or bosses or teachers or employees. But we already know as the book of James, says one of my least favorite verses in all the bible that leaders will be judged more strictly than others isn't that enough right they don't need our judgment as well the lord will take care of that and what leaders need is encouragement and support and yes honor and as a leader i can tell you i may not love this or that leader or you know politician or even the football coach of my favorite team. But I always do sympathize and usually side with leaders because I understand and realize how hard their job is. right? How they have to make very unpopular decisions that they know people won't like, that they believe will be for the ultimate better good of an organization or a group or a country they lead. And they need to know that they're supported. So an application for this would be, you could do something as simple as just writing an encouraging letter to a leader in your life, right? Not here at the church, we don't need that, but somewhere else. (laughs) So your your MLA, your MP, or your boss, or your teacher. And so uh, I do this quite frequently, where I just write a letter of encouragement. I'm not stating a position, I'm not saying I support or don't support this or that, but often I'll just, and sometimes even on behalf of the church, just write to a local official and just say, hey, we're praying for you. Um, You know, we appreciate the work that you do, because whether we agree or disagree with the work, we do appreciate the work that is being done. And the Bible is really clear that when we do this, when we take this approach of honoring leaders, that actually it will end up benefiting us in the long run. So look at this uh, principle that takes place in the Bible. So the first one takes place in Hebrews chapter 13, and it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The scripture just says, you know, if you make the life of your leaders miserable, it actually doesn't end up benefiting you. It actually ends up hurting you. But if you make their work a joy, then actually it will benefit you in your place. So uh, the other one is kind of a similar principle that we find in the book of Ephesians, where it says, Honor your father and mother, so those put in a position over you, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So you see how this ends up kind of coming back to us based on how we treat those who God has placed. Over us, And so you can't escape this lesson from David's life. We saw it over and over again in 1 Samuel, and you can, again, read those first five chapters of 2 Samuel here and see how David handles himself and honors those who maybe don't even deserve it and doesn't give in to the mob mentality that wants to take advantage of Saul and his family while they're down. And that attitude, of course, speaks to David's humility, which is our second kind of takeaway from him to have humility like David. And this has already come up a lot in this series, so I won't belabor this point. But what makes David a man after God's own heart is not that he was more well-behaved than other people, because in fact, a lot of times he wasn't. And that's good news for us. What separated David was his soft and humble heart. You know, lots of people end up in the cave in life. Lots of people end up in the wilderness, in the desert like David, in the mess and madness of conflict and loss and confusion. But very few of those endure and make it from the cave all the way to the crown, end up following and fulfilling God's will and plan for their life. What made David different? It was his humility. Later in 2 Samuel, in chapter 22, David reflects on how God saved him from the hand of Saul and how David endured and patiently waited for his time. And he says this about God. He says, you save the humble, and it's your help that has made me great. Other translations say, your gentleness has made me great. Great. And if you read 2 Samuel 22 there or any of David's psalms he wrote, one thing you'll notice and that we've seen in this series is the last character trait from David, which is that David knows how to honestly express his emotions. David is a man in touch with his emotions, and it's part of what makes him great. David writes a a, a lament in chapter 1 here, and it says that he weeps for Saul. And he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan. And throughout Samuel and the Psalms, David just pours out his heart before the Lord over and over. His questions, his anger, his frustrations, his sorrows, his joys. And the evidence is that God not only tolerates it, but really honors it, actually prefers it. He made us emotional beings and wants us to express those emotions. And one of our our many goals for a Sunday worship service such as this is to help provide a a space and a place where we can just feel, through song and through prayer and through the Word, to creatively articulate our feelings before God. So we're uh, what's called a, a Pentecostal church, and not everybody might be familiar with that or, or aware of that, but sometimes people say about churches like ours that, that we're emotional, and of course they mean that pejoratively, but I take it as a compliment, because in my opinion, we're just being human. right? We're just being real. We're not trying to act stoically as if we have our lives perfectly under control just because we believe or think the right things. That's not enough. We have to, like David, incorporate our emotions into our worship and into our relationship with God. So in addition to thinking rightly and acting rightly, we have to feel rightly before God. Said more theologically, we need good orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy from pathos. Our passions need to be rightly aligned with God and toward God. So maybe this makes some of you thinking types really nervous. (laughs) Let me reassure you, I'm no anti-intellectual. I have two master's degrees and a PhD, and I'm not bragging. Otherwise, I'd have to go back to the previous point on humility. I'm just reassuring you that I'm not saying thinking and believing the right things doesn't matter. Of course it does, and we do prioritize that. But the truth is, I can't think as accurately toward God as I can feel accurately toward God, especially in the moment. And more than theological essays from David, we get these heartfelt songs of emotion. And it's why we don't just spend an hour only preaching the Word and doing Bible study when we gather together, because we also need to feel the things we're thinking and learning. And it's why we make time every Sunday to sing. It's why we have our second Sunday soak like we did last Sunday where people just stay and it's a safe place to bring what you're feeling and your emotions before God. And it's why we talk about prayer in the Spirit or, or praying in tongues here at Oceanside, not because it's some rite of passage or some experience we, we you know, need to seek or have, but because praying in the Spirit allows us to express the inexpressible before God. There are some things I just cannot rationally communicate before God. What the scriptures call the groanings too deep for words, Romans 8.26. Hear what David says in Psalm 6.6. He says, I'm worn out from my groaning. I mean, he wore himself out expressing his emotions before God. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping, and drench my couch with tears. Some of you are like that's the biography of my life. You know, lots of you come in here every week, and you cry through much of, if not most, of the service. You know, you, you bring your tissues with you, or you make sure you sit nearby. You know you're in a Pentecostal church when there's just tissues everywhere. We're ready. And you have to spend five to ten minutes just to gather yourself before you can leave. And I want you to know that's okay. And in fact, it's as it should be. And we honor that. It's not a sign of weakness, but rather of finding strength in the Lord. And just last week, we had four or five people literally just physically collapse in tears at some point in the service, overcome both by God's presence and just allowing themselves to feel. Some of that was during our soak time. And I want you to know that this is a safe place for that. It has to be a safe place for that. And you will never be judged. In fact, we want to follow your example in that. So, church, let's learn from David. Let's live lives that are able to overcome the cave, to eventually receive the crown like David, because we honored those above us, we had humility, and we honestly expressed our emotions before God and were vulnerable with God and others. And if we do that, then perhaps we can be a person after God's own heart, The way David was. So we're going to sing and we don't close the service with a song because we feel like we have to or we're just not sure what else to do at the end of the service. No, it's because we want to take time to actually feel and respond with those feelings in worship after hearing the word. And whether it's joy and exuberance, which is appropriate, or sorrow and tears, which is also appropriate, We're not even sure, perhaps, what we should feel. We're just like, I don't even know how I got myself here, but I'm here, God. I'm not even sure what to feel, but I'm just gonna bring what I have before you. Hebrews 11.6 is a good summary of David's life where it says that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And so if you earnestly seek him, you can't lose. He's a rewarder of that. So if you're in the cave of life or somewhere, know that God still has a crown in your future like he did for David. If you remain faithful and you keep worshiping through these moments, for as Psalm 30 verse 5, which David wrote, says, even though weeping may last for the night, there will be joy in the morning.